Christy was such an inspiration to me when I was growing up. I was a first-generation immigrant. We were really, really poor. I didn't speak English, and she was one of the few things that transcended that, you know, cultural and economic barrier that was around us. And you know, I had been brought up in a really conservative Chinese family, where I'm like I'm the youngest of seven children, and I'm after four boys. Yeah, and I'm you know in. Traditional Chinese culture—it's like the hierarchy is based on age and gender. So I was just completely screwed in every aspect. I was like the—I <laughs> was like the lowest of the low. And so I, there was like no tiger mom in my upbringing. There was no expectation of me growing up and you know going to college. It was really like try to not work in the factory anymore because. I worked in a clothing factory as a kid, and it was like, well, the best case scenario for you is maybe to like get married and take care of a guy, you know, and, and bear him children. And being an extremely bad cook and housewife, they despaired of this future ever coming true for me. But it was really inspiring for me to read Agatha Christie and Miss Marple. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writers Block podcast. Four New York Times best-selling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with seventy books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the latest episode of Friends and Fiction Writers Block podcast. Today we are featuring two modern acclaimed writers who have contributed to the anthology Marple: Twelve New Mysteries. These are new stories featuring legendary sleuth Jane Marple, the first original Marple stories in 45 years. I am Ron Block, and I am Patty Callahan Henry. Each author reimagines Agatha Christie's Marple through their own unique perspective, while staying true to the hallmarks of a traditional mystery. Today, I am so excited to talk to two of these authors. Please welcome Alyssa Cole and Jean Kwok. Hi. Welcome, Jean and Alyssa. It's so great to have you here. Thanks so much for having us. It's great to be here. Awesome to be here. This is quite a project. Yeah, quite a project. I think we loved, I think Patty listened on audio and I read it. So it was, we got two different perspectives and we kept chattering back and forth about how, you know, the things that we loved about it. But can you each briefly tell the plot of the story that you contributed? And we'll start with you, Alyssa. Sure. Um, my story is called Miss Marple Takes Manhattan, and we have Miss Marple visiting the U.S. And she is in New York City for the premiere of her nephew Raymond's, an, an adaptation of her nephew Raymond's novel into a play on Broadway, so they think. And um, of course, <laughs> things go awry because it's a Miss Marple story. And so she, you know, she gets to solve a mystery in New York City. That's yes. I love the setting of that too, and I, we're gonna we're gonna talk individually about some of the details in a, in a few minutes. But Jean, how about your story? Well, my story is called the Jade Empress, 
And in the Jade Empress, Miss Marple is actually on a cruise to Hong Kong. And of course, since she's on the cruise, you know there is a murder. First, one <laughs> body falls, and then another body, and it's up to Miss Marple to save the day because, you know, nobody can get off the ship. I can't wait to dive a little more into that because mm-hmm. I kind of want to go on the Jade Empress and take a cruise without the murderer. <laughs> But I want to know from both of you what it is about. Agatha Christie and Miss Marple in particular, that fascinated you so much that you were willing or wanted to write a short story about it, Jean. Well, I mean, I was incredibly thrilled and honored to be asked. It wasn't like, oh, let me think about it. It was like, oh, yes, absolutely, I'm there. Just you know, I'm going to do it. And I have to say that it is true that um, a short story imposes upon your creative life. As a writer, in a way that an essay or a review doesn't. So I actually don't normally write them. It takes me like as long to write a short story as it does really for me to write a book. So it's like it's not something that I normally do lightly because it's the same pot from which you create your novels, right? So, but of course, because this was Miss Marple and Agatha Christie, I did not think twice. I was like, yes, I'm there. I'm going to do it, no matter what, and. It's because I think Agatha Christie was such an inspiration to me when I was growing mm. up, and you know I was a first generation immigrant. We were really, really poor. I didn't speak English, and she was one of the few things that transcended that you know cultural and economic barrier that was around us. And you know I had been brought up in a really conservative Chinese family, where I'm like I'm the youngest of seven children. And I'm after、oh, four、wow. boys, yeah. And I'm, you know, in traditional Chinese culture, it's like the hierarchy is based on age and gender. So I was just completely screwed in every aspect. I was <laughs> on both sides. I was like、yeah. the lowest of the low. And so I, there was like no tiger mom in my upbringing. There was no expectation of me growing up and you know going to college. It was really like try to not work in the factory anymore because I worked in a clothing、mm. factory as a kid. And it was like, well, the best case scenario for you is maybe to like get married and take care of a guy, you know, and. and Bear him children, and being an extremely bad cook and housewife, they despaired of this future ever coming true for me. But it was really inspiring for me to read Agatha Christie and Miss Marple, who are these kind of independent women, and I in a in a world that didn't expect them to be independent or successful, and to know that Agatha Christie, you know, went on to become the best-selling writer in the world. I love that. That's so cool. How about you, Alyssa? I actually did not read Christie when I was growing up. I did, of course, grow up with Christie. You know, with television shows based on her characters that I watched, and movies, and characters inspired by characters. You know, and all of the novels that I read that were inspired by her that I didn't know were inspired by her. But she was not like a part of my childhood. I grew up reading. A lot of books, most of which you know I was not supposed to be reading at that age, and anything、yeah. I could find, and a lot of it was my parents' library. So while we did have a lot of mysteries, they weren't Christie mysteries. And then when I got older, there was the additional complication of like 
I had so many books to read. And then there were, you know, some racial and <laughs> class things going on with Christy that I was like, uh, I, you know, I don't really know if I need to prioritize reading these books. There are so many other mystery writers I love. When I did start reading her, I really I found that it was like much different than I had imagined. Uh, I mean, there were things I was like, okay, you could have cut this out. But but, um, as far as like the hindsight's 2020, right? As far as like the character and the writing, I found it to be like really witty, really intelligent, insightful, sassy and then also with christy herself finding out you know more about her background and all the interesting and amazing things she did particularly for a woman of that time period i really became interested in that and i was like okay so then being part of this anthology for me was really cool i love writing short stories uh i wouldn't say i prefer them but i kind of do because i have like if you talk to my agent or my editor, I'm always like, what if I write this? What if I write that? And they're like, (laughs) that would be great. Uh... Except you have to, there's not that much time in the world. So I love short stories (laughs) because um, they allow me to have an idea that's fun to play around with it and not have to write like a full length novel in order to explore the idea. So for me, it was like cool getting to work on this anthology with this, you know, character that is so beloved. I mean, there was a pressure that came with that as well, because, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but also to try to, you know, live up to the challenge of writing a Christie story that Christie readers would love that I would be, you know, I would be happy about as an Alyssa Cole work and that will live up to the things that I love best when I was reading her work. So, Well, you know, to add to what Alyssa was just saying about the more difficult aspects of Christy, you know, I, I think I also, I think we also felt like this was a chance of course, to honor her, but also to reinvent her in a way, you know, you want to stay true to the character of Miss Marple, but it was also an opportunity to kind of bring her into the modern world in a way that felt true and honest to what Christy herself would have done. Yeah. That's so well put. It really does come across in, in, in all, both of the stories too. Um, well, the whole book, but um, can you tell us anything about how the project actually came to life, where the original idea for it came from and how did they approach you to join Alyssa? Well, I was approached by my agent who said that the Christie estate and the editors who worked with it had reached out and asked if I wanted to be part of it. And I was like, me? (laughs) Like, because, (laughs) you know, I've written a lot of books, but I'm still relatively new to like solidly being in the thriller and mystery genre. And so my first thought was like, oh my God, there are so many people who probably deserve to be in this and more than me. Aren't we the worst when we do that to ourselves? Like, thank you for the compliment. I'm like, but why me? And then I was like, should I do it? Maybe I should turn it down. And then at the, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, this was an honor that they asked me to do this. It's something I feel like I'm capable of doing well. And, um, you know, I'm going to do it. <laughs> so, That's awesome. yeah, it was, there was a little bit of like, and also like, am I going to be able to do it? You know, this is like a super strong 
I know it's not considered a fandom, but it's a fandom. (laughs) Like, like, I was like, I really want to make sure that I can do something that, you know, addresses the topics that I want to talk about, but also um, makes, you know, her readers happy when they read it. So I just kind of tried to figure out whether I could manage to do all those things. And hopefully I did. (laughs) You did. You did. You did. What can you tell us, Jean? Yeah, well, they kind of approached me the same way. And, you know, I knew immediately I wanted to do it, but I also had a novel deadline. And it was really like kind of negotiating both of those projects at the same time. And they were like, I have to say the Agatha Christie people were so incredibly respectful and great in terms of that. So they gave us the parameters of the project. And so it was, there were like clear rules that we had to follow. I was wondering about that. Yeah. If there were, if, if there was kind of guardrails they put up around it. Absolutely. And I mean, Alyssa, you have to help me because I don't remember them that well, but I think it was like, we yeah, we weren't allowed to substantially change her backstory or her time period. Like she couldn't be like six years old, you know, or be married with kids and we couldn't give her a love interest. Like they didn't want any of that kind of change. They wanted us to have a horticultural theme. They wanted us to be maybe inspired by one of her books I don't know. What else, Alyssa? Do you remember what else they made us do? I honestly don't remember. One of the stories I pitched was a young Miss Marple. (laughs) 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 But they enjoyed the the theater aspect of Miss Marple Takes Manhattan more because, you know, of Christie's history with the theater. But I think mostly they just wanted it to be true for readers and they were basically like, they were the guardrails, but like, they were like, okay, right. Which the main thing was they wanted to know what the mystery was going to be so that we wouldn't all have the same mystery or the same. <laughs> and, and that was hard for me because I often end up changing things as I'm writing. But yeah, it was basically kind of like, how, how do the people, does anyone die? How do they die? <laughs> yeah. Who saw, who did it? How is it solved? So, yeah. Yeah, I remember they were kind of like, you know, let's not have 12 stories of people getting pushed out the window. You know, it's like, could we vary (laughs) a little bit the techniques of killing of like murder and um, and so on. And I remember I was really like, you know, I had some very vague ideas about it, but I was really concentrating on writing a novel at the same time. And they were... um, They were so great because they wanted an outline pretty early on. Like they wanted to have an idea of what the story was going to be. And I was like, I can't do that. I can't. I'm like, I can't write an outline because I am just desperately trying to write a novel for my editor that's overdue. And, uh, and the editor, you know, the one who does a lot of publications for the Agatha Christie estate was like, Hey, gee, let's just get on the phone. And so we got on the phone and she's like, so what are you I thinking? Yeah. And I was like, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. 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 And then, um, she like typed up this thing and she said, is this kind of what you were trying to say? And I was like, yeah, in a far more art- articulate way. That is actually what I was thinking about for the story. And she was like, great, there's our outline. We'll just send it in. 
So that was Gene really Kwok, the blah, blah, blah story. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So both of you included past stories of, of Miss Marple, meaning you chimed back in order to solve this mystery. You, you, other mystery you referred to or thought about or hinted at other mysteries. She had to think back on a past murder. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you used that to solve the mystery? And there's no way either one of you read her entire cachet of stories. It's just not possible. I think it's uh, lifelong scholars can only do that. <laughs> so, you know, did you pick specific stories? Alyssa, how did you, since you didn't grow up reading it, how did you decide what to ping back to? I did try to read as many books as possible, the ones that I hadn't read. And then I chose a general time period that I wanted the story to take place in. Um, and I read the books that would be around that time period. Ah, uh, there you go. Also, oh, just true. to see like what Miss Marple's like state of mind was at that time, how she was feeling, um, you know, thinking about how much, because this is a story of, with her traveling, like how much she had traveled recently or, and like just trying to get for details basically on her outlook on life at the time point that I was writing the book um, so that I could incorporate that as well as like other details that could be fun Easter eggs for people who had read her previous, you know, fans who had read all of her work or so all of her Marple books. And um, also just people who were fans of Agatha Christie. I also read like biographies of Christie and Christie's life in the theater because she's also, I think the most prolific playwright of all time. Yeah. In addition yeah, to she is, absolutely. So I really wanted to kind of, not directly talk about it, but talk about, you know, the idea of people who are overlooked, people who, because I, I, feel, like, I feel like so many people don't know that and just kind of yeah. incorporate that aspect of her real life as well as let Miss Marple go to the U.S. as a fun treat for American Marple fans. Um, I always love writing about New York and also I just thought it would be really fun to see her there. <laughs> I love it. It's Your story is so fun, Alicia. I mean, it I think is. it's just Thank such you. a such a charming, like delightful um, story to read. It's just uh, Jean. So is yours, yes. both yeah, of you. Both and, and they're both very immersive, right? Like yes. you, you're on the ship. You're in the theater. Like you both have very sensory, immersive stories. So, how about you, Jean? Did you did you think a lot of it? Did you pick a certain because your murder, not you personally, or I mean, not you personally? <laughs> well, I researched murder, enough murders. So let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So the murder in your short story to solve it, she has to ping back to to a previous one and and the way you work that in without a spoiler is really fantastic so did you know that before you went in was that a past murder you wanted to work in T talk to me a little bit about that yeah well I think I think when I knew I was able to do this you know I think one thing I really wanted to do was just to incorporate some Asian culture into mm. a Miss Marple story. So that was something that I thought about from the very beginning. And, you know, thankfully, the Agatha Christie estate and the editors were really, really open and receptive to that. 
And a book that, you know, I had really loved was A Caribbean Mystery, even though there are kind of racist, problematic aspects in that book. But I, um, I didn't overlook that. I just thought that this was kind of an opportunity to challenge that, right? It's our, we are able to have this character and we're able to kind of bring her into, um, uh, into a modern sensibility, if not the modern world. So I think that, you know, I still do love that book and that structure. So I read a lot of Agatha Christie's books and short stories to try to figure out what really spoke to me. And despite the problematic aspects of A Caribbean Mystery, it really did because she's out of England and she's dealing with other cultures and she's, you know, dealing with kind of the wider world. And I said, well, would it be too much to put her on a cruise to Hong Kong? And luckily, James Pritchard, the great grandson of Agatha Christie, was like, oh, my God, I love that idea. And in fact, we'd love to actually see her in Hong Kong. So if that would work with your story. And so I felt really supported in putting in, you know, other aspects of Asian culture in that story. Um, And so that was kind of a great way to begin. And I went back and I outlined a Caribbean mystery. So I went through it technically scene by scene. Oh, I love it. Yeah. To actually try to figure out how to look at it as a writer, to figure out exactly what she was doing. And like Alicia, I added in, uh, you know, little Easter eggs for people who might be really big fans um, of the book so that they could see, oh, yes, well, there's the glass eye. And it starts with her having having um, a kind of boring conversation with an older gentleman. But instead, of course, Miss um, Marple, in my story, it's waltzing on the deck <laughs> of the Jade Empress, but she's waltzing in a very sedate way. She's not doing any gymnastics or, you know, lifts or anything like that. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Wow, that's so good. So I love that in both your stories, too, that you do a nod to the uh, the problematic past, but then you bring it into the future and kind of make, modernize it and give, give it a modern lens. With that aside, what do you attribute the enduring legacy of Agatha Christie to? We've talked about that a little bit, but why do you think it spans so long of a time of popularity? Well, I think the format of the mysteries make them so compelling for people to read. Her mm. writing style... Like, just technically in her writing style, the way she paces things and the way she introduces these, like, multi-character casts. Because, you know, at one point when I was writing, there's a a point in the story where it's, like, Raymond's point of view. And I purposely put that there because in a lot of her stories, it will just go to other characters. And Miss Marple, in some of them, Miss Marple is you know, gone for a long period of time. And then it comes back to her because she's kind of been in the background doing her thing. So I think kind of the, the way she, her characterization of people of Miss Marvel, but also all of the background characters in her stories, the way she builds mysteries that makes it fun for the reader to try to figure out, you know, who done it. Um, the way she captured part you know the essence of the times in ways that are surprising and fun and some of those things really do you know stand the test of time and you know like I said for me her humor and just like her observation and I think readers really enjoy that and also the kind of inconspicuous nature of Miss Marple she's not like a hard-boiled detective 
She's not even an adventurer or anything like that. She's a little old lady who everyone overlooks. Yeah. She's not even like, and she's not like the sweetest old lady. She's just a very <laughs> like direct old lady. And who is kind of just living her life and also somehow always finds herself at the scene of a murder. Um, so I think there's just like all of those things together for the Marple series really make re- uh, or something that readers find endearing and enduring. I love what Alicia just said about Miss um, Marple. And like, that's something that I think speaks to me so much too. She's not going to solve our problems by coming in there with a machine gun. You know, she's like, it's not brute strength. Like it's, it's she's going to sip her tea. And exactly. exactly. It's yeah. her wisdom. It's her cleverness. It's her insight into human nature. I think that makes her a really universal character. And what I was kind of taking apart um, Agatha Christie's work, technically just to understand what she was doing, I was really impressed because I think that she has such a high level of craft and artistry that is hidden within the structure of her work. And her books are such an easy read. She makes it look so effortless, just like, you know, a top dancer makes a really difficult move look like... um, you know, it doesn't cost them anything at all. But actually, there's a lot going on underneath the surface. And I think that's why her work is so enduring as well. I think that on top of the incredible craft structure in her mysteries, it's also that, um, there's, like Alyssa said, there's a whole layer of social commentary, of humor. I think we all had a lot of fun trying to channel her voice, her little comments, uh, <laughs> almost like Jane Austen about what, you know, what the society is like, what human nature really is like. Um, So I think all those things together combine to make something very special. I love both. I have a quick question, though. Did they tell you that you had to put her nephew Raymond in the story? No. (laughs) No. It's in the story. story. It's probably because he's a writer. Yeah. In part because he's a writer. So I guess everyone's like, let's put it. But I think also he's like the main stay in her life. Right. Throughout all of the stories. And like the one person who... He doesn't understand her, but (laughs) appreciates her and makes sure that she's taken care of and loves her and who she loves in her, you know, Miss Marplian way. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to put it. Yeah, he always thinks she's so delicate. And I think that also just functionally in her stories, he's often a kind of agent of change, right? He comes in and she's got to throw the Christmas dinner or he invites her to a thing and she's Mm got to go there. And I used him in that way in my story, too, because why is Miss Marple on a cruise to Hong Kong, of all things? Because he's there. So he's doing some kind of cultural thing and he's dragging her there to admire him. And that's why she (laughs) winds up there so he's very useful i think yeah he's like her connection to the wider world outside of saint mary mead yeah i kept thinking ben he travels a lot of great places (laughs) (laughs) well to solve both of these murders miss marple has to notice as usual some small detail that someone else didn't notice no spoilers but small things that tell her that something is just a bit amiss. 
In fact, you know, maybe someone else wouldn't have even thought it was a murder. Did you know, I'm, as a writer, I'm curious about this because sometimes for me, these things rise up in the telling. I don't know ahead of time. Did you know what those small details were before you wrote the story or did you, you listeners can't see it, but Alyssa is shaking her head. No, 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 I wouldn't no, have no, known no, either. No. So talk to us, Alyssa. Um, yeah. No, it really, I had the main idea of like what would happen um, I honestly didn't know exactly who the bad guy was going to be or how, you know, the crime would be pulled off completely. But like, you know, you're talking about how she notices small details. And I mentioned this before to Jean when we were on another um, interview is that for me, from my perspective, it's not in the story, but I um, am a neurodivergent person and I view Miss Marple as a neurodivergent person who during that that time period. And like, for me, it's interesting because Sherlock has been reframed this way in modern times, but you know, just like in real life, it's not what people think of when they think of a woman, but like the way she notices patterns, the way she catches small details, Mm -hmm. the way she is very rigid about certain things and keeps to herself she has her friends and her, you know, her, her routines. Um, she's very practical and she, but she's open and interested in new things. People always assume she isn't because she's so rigid. So they have kind of like typecast her like, no, she just likes to sit in the corner knitting. They don't know that she's like thinking about all kinds of things while she's doing that. <laughs> so nice. as I was writing it, I was trying to think of, you know, how from an outside point of view, she would just look like to everyone else, including her nephew, an elderly woman who is probably scared standing in the middle of New York city. And she's actually interested, um, loves the energy is intrigued by it. And is also very self-aware of the fact that she's always noticing these small things and like worried at this point when she starts noticing them. So I was trying to think of like, what is something that is like fun and small that maybe only she would notice because everyone else is rushing around. It's normal to them. They live there. They're not really paying attention. And she would notice and that, you know, could come back around later. So I didn't know at the beginning, I, it came to me as I was thinking of, well, I won't say it for spoilers, but it came to me. as. I was <laughs> How about you, Jean? Did you know ahead? I don't want to list them either, but there's three very particular things, actually four that, that Miss Marple notices that everybody else kind of whatever moving on mm-hmm. and, and it helps solve, solve the murder. Did you know what those were before you wrote it? Well, I, a few, I, a few clues are similar to in a Caribbean mystery on purpose. Okay. So those I did know that was kind of structural, but I mean, I have to say it did change so much because I originally thought that um, <clears throat> we wouldn't find the first body and that <clears throat> therefore it could be um, kind of put off as a suicide, written off as a suicide. But I, you know, it's a cruise ship in the 1960s. And of course, I did my research. And after Googling how to get rid of a body on 1960s cruise ship, I realized that it was practically impossible. Because in those days, cabins didn't have balconies. Mm. They didn't have even windows. If they had a window, it was 
teeny tiny. Like you'd have to chop up the body to get it over that thing. <laughs> so I <laughs> think we were doing that. I, I know, I know. I'm Googling all these gory things, you know, and then I'm like, okay, well, maybe they could drag the body out and then <laughs> toss it overboard. And then I'm looking at all these pictures of cruise ships and from the sixties and Jane like, Clark's <laughs> defense at a murder trial. <laughs> I know, right? I know my, Her my Google, Google history. Is so, it's, so, it's so incriminating. It looks so bad for me. And, but like on those ships, like I realized you'd have to like pick up the body, push it over your head and throw it over the railing. And then it would hit one of the stupid life rafts, which they had hanging off the side. I was like, oh my God. I was like, okay, forget this. So no getting rid of the body. Uh, so it was things like that. So then, okay, I was like, oh, so there's a body and we've got to deal with the clues. Um, and what kind of clues could there be? And I thought that for me, what was really um, important in writing the story was that I thought about the ways in which Miss Marple is someone who is herself overlooked, but also doesn't overlook others. And that's yeah. something I've always really liked about yeah. her. Oh, I like that. She's someone who talks to the staff. She notices the chambermaid. You know, she notices all of the people who are typically invisible. And I thought, well, in this context where on this cruise ship, the staff is going to be mostly Chinese and mostly invisible with there being that on the cruise ships, a number of omens appear that need to be interpreted uh, because they are Chinese and that Mr. Marple would be the person who thought of actually talking to the Chinese staff to understand what was really going on and to interpret all of the symbols and omens properly. So I really wanted to be able to use that in my story. I love it. I love it. So let's take a little deeper dive into each of your individual stories. We've talked about it a lot. And um, I'm going to start with uh, with you, Alyssa, if that's OK. I was a huge fan of Miss Marple Takes Manhattan. And I know that um, you've already talked about why you said it there. But let's talk a little bit about the time period you were in, like the beginning scenes when she's out in Herald Square. And like you described her looking around. It's immersive. It pulls it pulls the reader right into that scene and, and and going into the store and everything. It just really brings back a lot of excitement about New York. But the time period is certainly one you obviously weren't around for. But how did you get back to that time? Well, I tried to do as much research as I could, look at old photos of the settings and do research. I mean, I honestly did like way too much research. It's like, why am I looking at stuff from like the 1800s? I was looking like at the architecture of the buildings and for the stores, I really wanted to, you know, I've been in the, the modern day versions of those stores, but I wanted to kind of harken back to what was there at that time period, you know, what the technology would be at that time period. And also just how New York has always had this kind of, image as a dangerous place and like and for her it's just like oh look at all of these people and you know all of her observing all the things going on so I did you know I tried to find as many um, photos as I could and I also like you know research articles like skimming them about the time period and what was there during the time period and what was going on in the city at the time period and as the world as well to kind of draw certain things into the story um, that would be like 
specifically American if she was going to be in America for, <laughs> for, for her story. Um, and, um, also just wanted to have fun with it. Like, okay. I can't, I did make a certain change to one of the things that is a twist in the story just kind of came to me because it was funny, a funny misunderstanding that can happen. Um, and led to like much more research about uh, different neighborhoods and like, you know, neighborhoods yes. where artists lives and artists live during that period and, you know, how they might be perceived by people who see them as kind of like, you know, punks and, <laughs> and mm-hmm. scary people when eventually they would, you know, they would be the ones seen as like avant-garde and, you know, the top of the art scene. So those are just kind of some of the things I researched. It was so cool to see that aspect of, of the great white way too there. I really, <laughs> really love that. But I also love when you took um, the reader to the bargain basement in the store. I went, <laughs> it brought me, me back too. To- <laughs> I love that scene. <laughs> oh, it was like, Oh my God, memories. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit deeper about what you've already brought up. And that's, that's kind of like modernizing the more difficult aspects of Agatha Christie's writing. You really inflect some um, social issues and social conscience issues that were around at the time that, that you're setting that. Can you talk about the process of reassembling that to put it out? Because it was brilliant. I have to say Thank it was you. brilliantly done. The characters and the, um, and the setting and the, and just even the dialogue between the people said so much. So that, that was wonderful, but talk about the process of doing that. So as I was writing it, I really, wanted Miss Marple to maintain some of her, <laughs> I, I don't know, like her lack of cultural understanding um, that, you know, she's an elderly woman who is fixed in her ways and doesn't necessarily dislike anyone. But um, so I tried to think of like, how can I want the story to be funny? So how, what are humorous ways that I can hint at this um, for the readers to, you know, pick it up if they're going to pick it up. If they're not picking it up, they can just see it as a funny line and keep moving. So I really um, tried to think of like, you know, I worked with the dialogue. I didn't want it to be like preachy or hitting people over the head with it because, you know, that's not fun or funny to read. But I also, so I was like, what are, the, I, I wanted the overall mood to be funny. So I really tried to think of like little situations or thoughts that could kind of like, you know, hint at the, the issues of the past, but also like make people laugh as they were seeing how it was being processed in this modern time. So um, not completely changing her, but just showing like Jean said from a different, more modern perspective and also kind of just trying to integrate it into this story where she's like a little bit unaware, but not like actively like, you know, trying to be harmful. Um, but also she's more aware than other people of some of the issues going on as well, because she pays attention to things. So showing how those kind of different aspects of a person exist in one person exist in Miss Marple, like Raymond doesn't particularly know what's going on at certain points um, and doesn't expect her to know what's going on in American theater, but she knows she's been reading a lot from previous cases. So she has paid attention to it and thinks it's unfair and things like that. So um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of fit it in in a funny way though, you know, if you 
are a Marples fan and, and have read before about these kinds or have noticed these other kinds of things, you're like, okay, yeah, that's something she would say probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But oh, also yeah. like in a funny way, not in, not getting too serious with it. That's terrific. And no spoilers, but I, I just, the way the story ends up was so, it's <laughs> it's so awesome. But I also love how you honor her memory, not her memory, like us remembering her, but her own memory. And we, we think often of people of a certain age that don't, don't, can't remember things or anything, but she's sharp as a tack. And I love that because, she, because many are, many people are. And so that, that was a, a nice touch. Yeah. And I think this is something you know, like most Marple fans, but the, would agree on, but it's something that like I particularly feel strongly about is that, you know, we often write off older people and act like, Oh, once someone hits like 70, they're just, we automatically assume that, like you said, they're no longer very sharp. They forget things. And it's like, these are actually the repositories of, (laughs) uh, you know, all of our, of so much knowledge and, even people who we are not necessarily nice, who we don't like, still have a lot of just cultural knowledge. So the idea of like seeing someone's age as like, cause I just think of like sometimes when I go home and visit my family and then like suddenly like my grandmother will be like, Oh yeah, that's like the time, blah, blah, blah. And then tell this like wild story. And I'm like, <laughs> you never mentioned this completely wild thing that happened. So um, for me, um, it's been pretty important to try and like really, highlight that aspect of older people not and i think for christy too like i think she really um took something that would have been like a cliche a character that would have been a cliche annoying old older aunt sitting in the corner judging everyone and being annoying in any other book and made her into this like really special interesting character um, that would have been, you know, completely discarded in any other mystery. <laughs> That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. Thank you. And Jean, you do the same thing in your story. There's yeah. there's an older couple on the ship, the Jade Empress, who or a younger couple who look at her as just like the dawdling old lady mm-hmm. that they share the table with. And you both did the same thing. And you talked about it earlier, Jean, Jean about bringing up the cultural awareness while simultaneously diving into this mystery and, and her paying attention. I was so enchanted by this ship that I looked it up to see if it was real. <laughs> it, it's not. Um, but is it based on, on a ship? Another, I know that the story was inspired by the Caribbean one, but this actual ship, you must have had to build it in your imagination. Yeah, I, I did. I did. And also the name. I mean, I looked at the names of ships from that time period to find a name that they might have used. Um, that, But okay. that also still had some kind of, you know, deeper, more symbolic meaning. Because usually, of course, we talk about the Jade Emperor. He is, you know, the guardian. He's the one in Chinese culture. But then we have the Jade Empress here. So it's already a kind of wink, wink to um, Marple fans and more female power-centered um, readers. Uh, but indeed, yeah, I, I had to kind of build the world um, first 
before I knew if I could inhabit it. So I needed to know what happened on a 1960s cruise ship, aside from where you would hide a body and a knife and things like that. I mean, I looked up things like, you know, towel animals. Did they, <laughs> did they make towel animals in those days? They did not. So there's no hiding a knife in a towel animal, for example. Um, those kind of, yeah, those kind of things. But also like, what would the evening be like? What would they be wearing? You know, what kind of lessons would be given? How would they entertain themselves? And then I knew that I wanted to have some activities I thought would be really fun, like to have her waltzing, because I can really see Miss Marple waltzing. And I used to be a professional ballroom dancer. So I did that for a couple of years. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Yes. Yeah, in between college and graduate school. And so I know how to waltz. I know how to teach a waltz, but I needed to know how they waltzed in the 1960s. So everything you have to kind of take back there. Um, she's also doing Tai Chi in the book by the end of the book in Hong Kong which I can totally see her doing and being amazing at. But I also had to know what type of Tai Chi were they doing then? It was it possible if they have snacks and drinks, you know, it, are these things that actually existed in that time so that the, the book is as well researched and as realistic um, as possible. It's as if both of you took the small details that Miss Marple would notice and put them in your story because right. most readers maybe won't care, but from the wink to the Jade Empress, to the Tai Chi, to the waltzing, you took things of your life and her life and made this amazing alchemy of a story. But I have one last question for you, Jean. I noticed twice in the story, and I love this, when she's talking about solving it, she says, murders are always linked to matters of the heart. Talk to me about your choice mm. to include that. Cause I really, I really thought that was, that was a stop for a moment line. Well, yeah, I think we all have our ideas of um, who Miss Marple is, you know, when we write our stories and we're trying to take the original Miss Marple, of course, but she's always going to be filtered through our own lens. And in my mind, you know, the Miss Marple that I envision is actually a, uh, you know, she's strong. She's confident. She can, um, she can be sassy, but she's fundamentally kind. I, I see her as fundamentally mm. kind, fundamentally compassionate and, um, and extremely insightful about human nature. So one of the things I liked playing with in the story was that cultural difference in how Asian cultures treat the elderly as opposed mm -hmm. to um, other cultures, because in Asian culture, of course, we really revere the elderly uh, and that we believe you know, like Alyssa was saying that they are this font of wisdom and that they should be the ones who um, we take care of first. And so we have a little bit of that happening in the story as well. But most of all is that I really felt like that this was who Miss um, Marple really is, that she really is a wise, compassionate and incredibly courageous character. Yeah. And I think that really comes through in the stories, but it's something that gets glossed over in the novels and in Christie's original work because it's so subtle is that she's doing all of these things because she cares. Like she's not just doing it because she thinks crime is bad. She cares about the people who are, even if she doesn't know them, 
who kind right. of get embroiled in these yes. situations and she can't stop thinking about it until she has figured out how to help them. So I think um, that was one thing I really appreciated about Jean's story, how she pays attention to the daughter, how she's interacting with people and really kind of showing a side that gets hidden behind the kind of demeanor, you know, the facade of like rigidity and formality when she actually really cares about people. And that's how she gets involved in all. Of it. I mean, she is also just like pedantic in some ways, but it's also. Well, her I, empathy helps, yeah. helps her solve cases yeah. because sure. she imagines what it would have been like to be that person. Yeah. I, I just think that, um, I think that's, you know, that's so true. And you always have to walk that line, you know, where like you can't have her breaking down and sobbing, you know, yeah, just yeah. because, you know, you know, she's going to be controlled. But she, I, I do also believe that. And I saw that in Alyssa's story as well, where she's yeah. got this incredible kind of like, she's so funny. She's such a sparkling character in so many ways, but you, you know, you can indeed overlook those aspects of her. And it's great to have the opportunity to kind of highlight that and to just show those little moments without going overboard, you know, without bringing it too far. Y'all what an amazing project and such an honor to have you both with us today to talk about this book and these stories and your work, we love getting to know Jane Marple all over again in new ways through your eyes. Yes. So thank you for being a part of the book and thank you for being our guest today. Don't go. <laughs> it was so great to be here. Thanks, guys. Thank we you for having us. I know. Thank you so much. Oh. And thank you to our dear listeners. We are grateful every time you push play to tune in for these episodes. Be sure to visit the friendsinfictionbookshop.org page to grab a copy of this book and other books by our acclaimed guests. Please join us next week and remember to tell a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.